Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Last week, we interviewed Bloom Cardenas on her incredible grandmother, Nikki de Sanfal. And today, I couldn't be more delighted to be sharing an interview with Catherine Opie. But just before we get into this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, where the exciting auction, Le Jeune, a collecting legacy, the London No Reserve Edit, is due to open for viewing at Christie's King Street from the 7th to the 10th of November 2022. It presents an accessible opportunity for both new and seasoned collectors to acquire unique works and editions assembled over three generations by Jacqueline and Marc Lejeune and their descendants. The collection reflects the family's deep passion for the arts and is the outcome of their close relationship with living artists in Belgium and abroad, including work from exciting female artists, including Belinda de Broekere, Nikki de Sanfal, Sasha Braunig, Georgia Gardner-Gray, Murray Sunner, and more, with each lot offered at a starting bid of £100, collecting exciting contemporary art with great stories and history behind them has never been easier. The sale is open for bidding online through the 10th of November. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned photographers working in the world right now, Catherine Opie. A photographer of portraits of people, of landscapes, the urban environment and American society, Catherine Opie uses the tool of the camera to explore sexual and cultural identity. First picking up a camera age nine, it was in the 1990s that she began to gain recognition for her studio portraits of gay and transgender communities who appear painterly and defiant, powerful and regal. Travelling across the world and in particular different areas of North America, Opie has documented masculinity through high school footballers, politics and culture through her images of the 2008 presidential election, the landscape through images of sparse urban environments and memorial through images of house belongings once owned by Elizabeth Taylor. Linked by notions of complexity, community, visibility and empathy, Opie's photographs tell a story about the society in which we live. Speaking about her work, she has said, From early on, I wanted to create a language that showed how complex the idea of community really is. How we categorise who we are as human beings in relation to places we live. 
Born in Ohio and now based in Los Angeles, where she is a professor of photography and the chair of the UCLA Department of Art, Opie has exhibited in the world's most prestigious museums, from Mocha in Los Angeles to the Guggenheim in New York, and more recently in London for her solo show at Thomas Dane Gallery, To What We Think We Remember. Taking its title from a Joan Didion quote, this exhibition focused on community, collective responsibility and how to move forward while faced with the potentially devastating challenges of climate change and the erasure of personal and political freedoms. Catherine Opie, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I can't tell you what an honor it is to speak to you today. I first saw your work when I was in my early 20s in a book, and I remember being utterly struck by its power. It was your self-portrait cutting from 1993 Mm. of your back turned towards us. And I remember being in awe of its ability to completely shift my understanding of what portraiture could be. A face turned away from us with an image of a house and two people carved into your back. I then remember seeing Being and Having at the Masculinities Exhibition Mm -hmm. at the Barbican a few years ago. They were confronting stark, beautiful and real. Although they look us straight in the eye, there is this sense of an invitation. So I want to start by asking you, how do you wish for people to feel in front of your work? Well, I think it's different in relationship to who is looking at the work. I think when it's my own community, I think that all of a sudden they feel that they're represented. They can walk into a museum and they're all of a sudden actually in that museum, which is not an experience that, you know, young gay and lesbians and trans have had throughout history. And I think that ultimately, like I really think of portraiture as a shared moment. I don't think that you can ever really capture this cliche essence of a person. I think it is just a shared moment, and I think that that's how I want it with the audience. But I also want to challenge their ideas and uh, what their beliefs are. I want to try to get to a greater democracy, a greater understanding of humanity. And so I try to incorporate that within the work by its quietness. But it also has a big voice at the same time. Totally. I mean, just seeing the works downstairs, this idea of stillness amongst chaos or you see the expanse of the world almost in your work, but there is something that you hold on to that is so still in a way. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I talk to my students a lot about when I'm working on sequencing work with them, because sequencing, it's everything within photography. It's like the photographer's monograph is the most beautiful thing to enter in terms of if it's a really well-sequenced book. And I think that images need to go next to each other to begin to tell a further story. But I also tell my students, remember to have the pause. Remember to let the viewer have a moment where they can escape, where they can go into their own mind, where they can begin to feel like these other things of questioning what they're looking at and what their own position is in relationship to being a viewer. And I think that's important for artists to think about. Yeah, this idea that actually it's what's outside the lens or in poetry, what is in those spaces or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, why are you attracted to the medium of photography? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, This is the worst question. (laughs) No, it's kind of the best question because I'm obsessed with it. I mean, I have spent my life only thinking about one thing for the most part. Um, (laughs) A great way to live. I think that it's the generation that I grew up in. I mean, I was born in 1961. 
the pictorial magazines of that time were life, look, you know, National Geographic. You know, you learned about the world through these magazines that would come into your house, and then you had the proliferation of television. But when I was a kid, there were still only three channels. And so I realized from an early age that photographs could relate a history that I was so interested in. And it was like actually Lewis Hine who was able to change the child labor laws in the United States. He photographed these kids working in factories and took those to Congress. And then we actually enacted laws. And that's an early example of what representation can do. And I'm really fascinated with that idea of a visual history and being a part of that. And that's why I wanted to be a photographer. Yeah. Absolutely. The fact that images can tell a, a visual story of the world. But I mean, you grew up at such an interesting time in Ohio, as you said, in 1961. And this was the era of the Cold War, the Nixon era. I mean, how did this time make you think about America and identity? Well, you went from Kennedy. So Kennedy was assassinated by the time I was a year old, right? And then you went from that into Vietnam War and civil rights movement. And so I literally remember the images from a kid at night when they would stop the newscast, they would scroll all the names of who in Ohio died in Vietnam. And it was just this American flag with these names laid over and it was just quiet and it, that was a pause. And I think that it's like visual culture was so built up in relationship to what imagery did right now. And you know, this is the fear now that we're oversaturated with images. But I say, no, not really. You just have to know how to work with them. You have to be able to tell your own story of what it means right now for you in relationship to how you look at images. There's certainly a lot of images, but there's always been a lot of images since the invention of photography, especially in terms of representation and documentary. And this idea of information as well and what you consume is so important. Yeah, and you can twist the language, you can work with it, and you can invoke other notions of different periods of time. And I think that that's the beauty of history is I think that a lot of people get worried like, oh, well, that's already been done. And I'm like never worried about what's been done. It's about what you're in conversation with. So it's always about the proposed dialogue that begins to happen for me in terms of making the different bodies of work. It's just like, well, what am I thinking about? What are the questions that I need to answer? And how do I create that ability to have people enter into that space? What is completely amazing, especially with you having been obsessed with the camera from an early age, is the fact that you have documented this such pivotal era of American history and history of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's fun. <laughs> I mean, that's the cool stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, that's where I get to enjoy, like, you know, when you start out studying art and being an artist, you don't ever think that you're going to be an artist that creates something iconic, you know, and you described like what has become a very iconic image of mine, which is the first self-portrait with these two stick figure girls. And at the time you're making it, you're just trying to make stuff that you feel is important in your mind. But I think that as you get older, now that I'm 61 years old, born in 61, now I realize that there's different moments of acknowledgement of what the work means and then trying to create these different gestures within it to challenge myself as well as an artist, 
because, you know, you get bored too. It's just like, wow, God, I've taken pictures for a long time. <laughs> like, I hope they're okay, you know, but like, what is it to really try to break through the language? And I think that's something that I've been really wrapping my head around in the last eight, nine years is what is photography about right now? What is our relationship to an image? And so when you were given the camera for your ninth birthday, right? I mean, obviously, visual culture was present in your life. But then when you actually got to hold your own camera, what was that like? Oh, I was, I did dumb things. I mean, <laughs> I remember my mom going like, why did you have to photograph every stop sign and fire hydrant in the neighborhood? And I'm having to pay for that, <laughs> like at changed. the drugstore. <laughs> and I was like, well, I was, I wanted to look at it. I wanted to categorize it. And she was like, but why? Because I have to pay for your film developing, and I don't think that this is going very well. I don't know why this is a good... This, these are bad photographs. <laughs> you know? The practice has only become more sophisticated. It hasn't actually changed that much from the same interest that I held as a kid. Yeah. But I find it fascinating, this idea that you also, when you were nine, took your first self-portrait. Yeah. And I mean... That is incredibly sophisticated to sort of recognize that as a self-portrait. I mean, this is also 1970. So I was born in 94. So if I was nine and took a picture of myself, it was probably a bit different. Well, you were probably doing that pursed look thing that Ben Stiller did, right? Like everybody had that look. Like the Zoolander. The, the Zoolander look. That would have been the look. Of, exactly. I remember, you know, it's just like where like my first self-portrait, I didn't have an idea of what a self-portrait was. I just knew that I needed to stand in front of my house and make muscles because I wanted to be perceived as strong. And I was also a tomboy. And, and so it's so funny, like it's actually like a little baby lesbian, baby dyke image. I'm wearing flowered pants. My bangs are cut uneven. My zipper is half down. It was just a pure moment of expression because I remember at that age, I would go around and going like, feel my muscles. Like I'm so strong because I didn't want to be, like I didn't want to be a housewife. I wanted to be a strong woman. And so it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as a child, you know, going around taking pictures of these stop signs and these drugstores, I mean, what compelled you to want to document that, but also people around you? I guess it was the way that I ordered things. It's about cataloging, about archiving, about recognizing that a picture has a certain sense of order that that fire hydrant might not be a very interesting fire hydrant, but the, the cornfield behind the fire hydrant could once disappear. Like there was a sense of like trying to capture something that in a neighborhood that I saw changing because cornfields were being turned into suburban communities. Like it was the rise of suburbia very big time at that, even in Ohio at that time where the farmland was ending. And so there was this, kind of acknowledgement on my part, and maybe that's from my father because he had the largest political campaign collection in America's history. So I grew up with all the original Lincoln stereotypes and this representation of American politics all around me. And I would have to sit as a kid and sort it. And my dad would have me, you know, recite all the presidents and all the vice presidents. And I needed to know the history of America in this really deep way. I think all of that must have really influenced like what it meant to document like what it was to hold these different times because I was you know I was looking at old 
political posters of McKinley. My dad had George Washington buttons, which was the original campaign button, was GW, that was a button. And so I grew up with all of this paraphernalia in my little house in Sandusky, Ohio, and it really, I think, had a profound influence on me that I'm realizing more and more now as I track down American politics with my own camera. But that's fascinating in the sense also that that's, in a way, not a single-minded view of America, but it is a definitely one angle of American society and what that kind of presidential nationalistic idea I can imagine the 70s looked like compared to so many other worlds that were perhaps silenced. Yeah, and also this notion of this great democracy, right, which I have always felt very flawed. Like, we have an incredibly interesting, flawed country. I never understood why other people wanted to live in America. I was like, well, well why do you want to live in America? Like, It's so fascinating. As a British person, I mean, it's just... It's the expanse as well and the different societies and subcultures that live within it. And I think it's also like the newness compared to Britain. Britain is so ingrained in a certain kind of society and history. Yeah, no, we have a very early history. It was very easy to take American history classes in 1961 as well. It's not that long of a history ultimately. (laughs) But the complicated idea of America, though, is unfortunately lost because it was a great experiment that this kind of democracy and what was written was a great experiment in relationship to leaving Britain or leaving Europe and what immigration meant. But it got really messy really fast. (laughs) We still are really in a big mess. (laughs) Yeah, not really sure which direction we're going into now. I know. (laughs) But I'm fascinated. I'd love to go back to your upbringing. You moved to San Diego when you were about 13. I mean, how did that influence your photography? Because obviously this is very different from a high. Yeah, it's very different. I moved from basically being across from a cornfield to what it felt like a John Wayne movie. (laughs) And so literally like students in high school rode their horses to school and there were stables behind the high school. Like it really was a John Wayne movie. And I was just like, whoa, what is going on here? And I built my own darkroom in San Diego by the time I was 14. And then I didn't really have that many friends because I was like the kind of heavy girl from Ohio with a Midwestern accent. And I was in Southern California where everybody was beautiful and going to the beach and surfing. And I didn't really know what to do with myself. And so I just started taking portraits of all the theater people and became the kind of high school theater photographer and then I would go home and I'd develop all night long in the darkroom and I'd take prints back. And then I would all of a sudden made friends. And it's kind of what I've done my whole life. It's like, oh, look at this wonderful queer community that I want to be a part of. Why don't I take your portrait and then you'll be my friend? <laughs> you know? so, but yeah, photography, I felt, was a way for me to actually create an identity for myself because I was kind of shy and I didn't know necessarily how to make friends. But I could do this thing that everybody really liked. And it seems like they still like it. It's a way in to communicate, I guess. Yeah, it's a language. Yeah. It's a language for me. Because obviously you've been very involved since the early 90s in like the S&M community. And this idea of community is at the heart of so much of your work. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, even in high school, it was the theatre community or, uh, you know, in the 80s, it was the S&M community. When was it that you really understood the power of photography to actually have the power to make visible certain communities? I don't think until it was actually put out in the public realm and critiqued and accepted and looked at. 
I think I was making the work for myself, but also always the world. But really for myself, so to speak, I didn't really know that it would work out for me. I mean, my dad made me get my real estate license when I was 18 because he said, I don't know if the art thing is going to work out for you. <laughs> and then I took time off. I was a camp counselor for two years teaching sixth grade outdoor education before I went to school. And originally I was going to be a kindergarten teacher because the art thing might not work out. And then finally my dad was dating his ex-girlfriend from high school which was so funny, years later, after my parents divorced, he went back to his high school sweetheart who was a painter in New York. Wow. And she was looking at all my photographs, and she was like, you know, you've done this your whole life, Kathy. And I was like, yeah, I know. And she goes, you're really an artist, you know that. And I was like, I don't know, Dad doesn't really want me to be an artist, you know. And she goes, no, you're an artist, and you need to quit being a kindergarten teacher, and you need to move to a major city and go to an art school, and you need to do that with your life. And so I did. I just was like, oh, well, Eleanor says I should do this, so I do love it. Why not just try it? And so then I went to San Francisco Art Institute and then CalArts, and then it was just always, that's what I was doing. I was working on this language of photography. It only takes like sort of one person to just give you that confidence. One person, only one person. Otherwise, I'd be in the kindergarten teacher in <laughs> tiny little chairs for the rest of my or life. houses. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the teeny tiny chairs. <laughs> I mean, you're very, you know, thorough. You're good at categorizing things. So you actually probably would very, be very good. But in 1991, you made your series that I spoke about earlier called Being and Having, mm -hmm. which is this, uh, I saw it at Masculinities at Barbican and it just totally stood out. How did this series come about? Well... I was living in L.A., which was a very different lesbian community than San Francisco. Like, San Francisco was a very body positive, very political, very, like, expressive community. And all of a sudden, I'm in L.A., which is a cliche of lipstick lesbians, which was true. I mean, it is the L word to a certain extent. So my friends and I were both Bay Area and L.A. folk, you know, who were part of the leather community. And... We started putting on fake mustaches and riding our motorcycles to the only seven-day-a-week lesbian bar, and we would ask women coming out of the bar if they want to ride home, and we'd bet, you know, we'd have chaps on our leather jackets, <laughs> our mustaches, Amazing. and you know, we 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 felt like we were quite cheeky to use a British <laughs> expression, and we had a lot of fun with it because nobody ever wanted to ride home, right? They were like. What are these, you know, it was just like, it was too much. Like, what is that kind of drag? Like, the community did not know that. And then I realized that I just wanted to make a different kind of portrait, which was a studio portrait using the same yellow background. And you, like, crop the faces with these fake mustaches on with a 4 by 5 camera so you could see every fake detail. Being and having is basically a, a Lacanian kind of notion, but also Judith Butler had become really important in terms of her writing at that point around masculinity and this idea of performing masculinity was interesting. And But I just really wanted to make th these portraits of these women with fake mustaches staring back. I just thought they would be humorous because the little plaque has their <laughs> nicknames on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, oh, so bad or <laughs> chief or whitey, like these kind of nicknames. And I just thought it was a way to think about portraiture differently than at that period of time of what it meant to take a portrait of a person in their home. 
I wanted to strip the idea of identity within place to only have identity beyond the body. And then from there, it went into the 90s portraits where we're more of a nod to Holbein. How did you kind of want to reinvent the portrait, I guess? Or what is the power of it being painterly as well? Uh, to use history in a certain way to hold people to the image. And if you watch people look at photographs, they disseminate it really quickly and they move on. So one of the big things that I do with the kind of aesthetics within my work is that idea of like, well, how do I hold a viewer for more than 10 seconds? Like, what can I do to get that moment? And so Richard Hawkins, an artist that I went to CalArts with, introduced me to Holbein after I made Being and Having. And when we made the first two portraits together and he said, this is your body of work, you know, you go with this. It's not going to be a collaboration. And it was really my dialogue with Richard about what portraiture does and knowing that I didn't want to do the in-home photographs. Like I didn't want to have the paraphernalia of the whips or that the identity needed to be read on the body, that that's what we were doing with our bodies at that time. And also, really importantly, those portraits are because of the decimation of my community in relationship to AIDS. I had all these friends dying. And I wanted to honor them in the way that Holbein did around the royal family or that idea of, of history being embedded, that you recognize a certain kind of formality that's palatable, but you don't think of it necessarily in a photographic way. You think of it as a painterly. You're just able to, I don't know, have more emotion within it, I suppose, of what the figure does and what the body does in relationship to the color. And also to use color, but not in a fashion way, but to use color as color. Trying to make images that work differently than what we know photographs to be but mainly to honor my community in, in a decimation from AIDS. Totally. I sort of love the conversation with what you were saying earlier about the cornfield disappearing and about people disappearing, this idea of that a camera can be a way to memorialise. And then you turned the camera, like we said earlier, which was the first portrait I came across by you, again, on yourself. How did that feel, sort of memorialising yourself and your own feelings within this culture? Well, I did it after a breakup. My first domestic relationship broke up and I was heartbroken. And at that point in the dungeon, I had done a lot of blood play because we were playing with blood. A lot of the lesbians were playing with blood because it horrified our gay male friends. I mean, I think we were using blood as a substance because blood was what was feared. You know, in 1993, still blood was highly you know, idea of contaminants and contagion and all of these issues in terms of homophobia too. And so what better to express like my longing and my desire, but to use the blood of my own body in a cutting on my back of two stick figure girls with triangle dresses, which is not the image that I was allowed to draw in kindergarten. We didn't have two stick figure girls. We always had the stick figure man and the stick figure girl with the house. So it was my, again, proposition for a way to think differently that all of us as children could have a potential of drawing two stick figure moms, which then, you know, I got to have a wife and a family and a son and a daughter and do all of that. And what was the reception for that? It must have been this incredible breakthrough moment where if, 
American society had been so programmed to be so heterosexual. The fact that it was only about 30 years ago is I know, it's kind of crazy. crazy, right? I made that work in such a tight-knit community at that point that I didn't know what it would be like to put it out in the world. And then there was a lot of uh, good things about me putting it out in the world, but there was a lot of conflict for me in putting out in the world too because I became a singular identity. I became like, oh, you're the dyke photographer of the moment kind of thing. And, you know, I was surrounded by an amazing community such as Del Gray's from here. And, you know, there was like a huge community of really amazing other artists. And to all of a sudden be labeled that and be trying to make the work. So immediately I made freeways. I went back to landscape because I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be just this one identity for you. And how dare you like think that we're all only one identity. Identity is way more complicated than that. But it was amazing to be shown and want people to show your work. I mean, at that point, you know, photographs pretty much just went from my mind into boxes into storage. <laughs> so it's really nice not to have things in storage. Why did you then go to the freeways? I mean, this idea of landscape and the built environment. And do you see them as portraits as well? Portraits and landscapes both. I mean, I would say that like many malls, the American city's body of work as well as freeways definitely enter a realm of portraiture for me. But there are, again, what we could lose, what we could disappear. Like, how do we look at the pyramids and those earlier photographs in the 1800s of pyramids? And will freeways one day be our nod to that moment in time of a built environment in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, the exhibition that you had on the summer at Thomas Dane, its title is quoted from Joan Didion's Blue Nights, with the full quote being... Time passes, memory fades, memory adjusts, memory conforms to what we think we remember. I mean, what drew you to using this quote for your show? Yeah, because it's always changing. Yeah. Nothing is permanent. Memory is, but memory is also, you know, questionable. Yeah. Whose memory... Possibly <laughs> <laughs> the most abstract thing in the world, It depends yes. on how much you're arguing <laughs> with somebody, but no, but I think that also this exhibition is a, both a poem and a proposition in relationship to the pandemic. And a lot of different students have asked me like, well, God, I don't want to make pandemic art. And I was like, what's pandemic art? This is a time in your life that you're living in that's unlike any other time. And I'm older and I, you know, I'm telling you at 19, like, this isn't normal. What's happening in the world right now is actually horrifying. <laughs> I try not to get my students so scared, but... I have all these friends who've gotten COVID and they talk about brain fog and memory loss and like what they feel that they don't know what it's like to hug somebody or like I think we went through all of this physicality and how can we as citizens of this world begin to try to actually make it more sustainable and allow for humanity to enter in versus like this incredible aggressive idea of me first. Totally, but this idea that we are craving collective community as well. We've had that stripped from us. Yeah. And that idea when we are together, like you say, it doesn't matter what questionable situation we might be brought together, it's the fact that we are craving human touch. We really crave it. Like even with 
being on a boat in Norway and watching a guy flip off a fjord and you have a moment of capturing that. It's all of these different moments in life that we keep trying to gain as a species of that kind of connection and this ability to begin to understand one another. And I mean, that's the proposition from me is just like, how can we get to that and how can we begin to have a better understanding that a football player can be also as vulnerable as, you know, a queer on the streets. I mean, I'm fascinated by your high school football series as well. This is a beautiful series, also in Masculinities at Barbican was the first time I saw it. It's funny because I'm 28 now. A teenager looks so young to me. And actually, it's interesting seeing them in a completely different position. It's more of a maternal feeling than a sort of friend feeling now, mm -hmm. which is kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> like I always saw them as like the older kids or something. And they all look so young and vulnerable. Well, and also we often in high school, the football players are uh, they're the ones that menaced us. You know, we were like, oh, can't go hang out on that side <laughs> of the quad because I'm going to get bullied or beaten up. Yeah. And uh, they they were people to be feared. In the same way that my community has been feared, right, in terms of homophobia. So why are we carrying all this fear around? I mean, why can't we just be more open to what it is to share a moment? And that goes back to what I said to you early, like portraiture for me is just a shared moment in time. And what is it about these stereotypes that you are drawn to capturing? Because I think it is interesting, you know, this boy could be anyone. He could be in the library. He could be having an argument with someone. He could be... He could be trying to come out. Yeah. And he doesn't know how to. It's that, that we narrow everything so much. And I'm not sure why, as human beings, we try to narrow things down in such small increments of understanding. It, that's never made sense to me. And maybe it's because my dad raised me in a, as an atheist as well, that I didn't have this kind of history of religion that like created fear in me, but there was always just this different openness of what it was to be in community. And, and it wasn't even like I grew up with hippie parents. I mean, they were like Republican, conservative <laughs> business people. But also interesting as well, because the stereotypes that what comes with Republicanism is yeah. also fascinating. Yeah. Well, the Republican Party is not the same Republican Party anymore. I mean, my dad was, he would have called himself a Lincoln Republican, which is very different. And, you know, the last president he voted for before he passed away was Barack Obama. And he was very proud of that. But I'm fascinated this idea of like documenting versus capturing versus portraying or mm. capturing a feeling. I mean, at what point are you documenting and at what point are you really capturing an essence? That is such an interesting, complicated question. I mean, people who have sat for me have often said that for whatever reason, I have this ability to read them when they're their absolute self for some reason, it, it, even though I don't believe in that you capture an essence of a person, a lot of people who sit for me say that I do that for them, that all of a sudden they feel my energy affect them and it's this weird exchange. You know, different people are like, well, you're very magical, you know, and I'm like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I think that it, it's different things. Like one is bearing witness in relationship to history the other is bearing witness as a feeling, as a moment, as a collective consciousness. 
Because even being and having, I mean, I wasn't reading Judith Butler at that point, and I wasn't a Lacanian. I wasn't all of that. And my friends and I had a collective consciousness in relationship to wanting to wear mustaches and do drag. And so I think there's like all these different levels like that where one photographer you don't even know about is making work in another place and you see their work and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm thinking about these things as well. There is something about that within our society that I'm fascinated with, which is different than just purely bearing witness. It's like painting someone in a way. Yeah, suppose so. I don't know. I've never painted. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would be really bad at it. (laughs) And why the Joan Didion quote? What is it about her Uh, writing? Didion, Didion's the one that got away. (laughs) Did you ever photograph her? Oh, no. I wanted to. I tried to for years. I have been reading Joan Didion since the 70s. Didion for me, like, just was this writer that I would lean into time and time again of being, like, the rawest, the most interesting, the kind of ability to describe a sense of time and politic, but at the same time imbue it with an incredible beauty of language. You know, and it's like, I love Susan Sontag. I love all of these other people, but Didion for me was, like, a true thinker that allowed also the real experience of herself come into the work. And I would like to think that I try to do that with my work a bit. Yeah, it's the rawness. It's about creating the atmosphere. It's about being there. You know, and also it's interesting. And the honesty. Yeah. Like, she's really honest. There are a few artists and writers, I think, who can actually... You know, like, it's like when I first saw your work, Self-Portrait Cutting... I didn't know it was made in 1993. I didn't know that it was made in reaction to this or because of this. And actually it's about artwork and writing having presences in different parts of people's life. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember I had a family member pass away recently and I just took to the year of magical thinking. And actually for me, even though it was written, what, like nearly 20 years ago, it touches you in a way that is extraordinary. Oh, it's an extraordinary book. So do you have any exciting sitters coming up? Uh, the Obamas are going to sit for me. I'm really excited about that. <gasps> but what that. of your port, like, like the sort of series that you had at Thomas Dane a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So for the, the listeners who do not know, mm-hmm. in 2017, Kathy had an extraordinary exhibition at Thomas Dane of Duro Luo and Thelma Golden, Celia Paul, Hilton Owls, David Hockney. And they were just these enchanting portraits set against a black background that just, I mean, these were so painterly. I mean, especially someone like Celia Paul, who was a portrait painter. Yeah, who's a por- well, that's the interesting thing, especially in London is that exhibition dealt with a lot of people who were also portraitists. Jillian Waring without her mask, you know, even Isaac Julian to a certain extent. All of a sudden I became very interested in like, oh, there's these other artists who are portraitists. Like maybe I should take portraits of them. What would it be like for them to sit for me? Because I've never sat for, I mean, I've sat for other photographers, but I've never sat for a painter and then how was that experience sort of having two portraitists come together for those works oh it's i think it's interesting i would like to know more what they felt about it there's something about that about somebody who makes portraits and then sitting for a portrait yeah 
It's coming at it from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Catherine Opie, thank you so much oh. for this wonderful <laughs> conversation. We do have one more question. This is the Great Women Artists podcast. If there was a woman artist from history or now who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And what would you say to them? Gertrude Stein. And I would probably be really shy to ask any questions because uh, she blew my mind. But Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein as one of my all-time favorite paintings. And I would want to actually try to photograph Gertrude Stein. Fantastic. So I don't know what we would talk about. I'm sure you'd have lots to say. So, but yeah, (laughs) that's one person I wouldn't mind coming back. Also, I love Alice Neal. Yes. I would also love to have photographed Alice (gasps) Neal. The photographs of her are extraordinary. I know. The Maplethorpe photograph of her is just like, oh. There's something also about seeing a photographic portrait of a portrait painter mm-hmm. that is fascinating in a way because you, you like, I, like I know what Celia looks like, but I also know her through her paintings or mm-hmm. Hockney. It's like, oh my gosh, it's actually the real thing, but actually it's through your eyes. Yeah. My favorite part of the David Hockney portrait is he has his wallet stuffed in his front pocket. <laughs> So he's got this nice little bulge with one little bit of paint on his pants. And it's just, I don't know, I just love that portrait of David. Fantastic. Kathy Opie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Great women artists. All of you need to just keep working. We just have to continue to be great. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Catherine Opie. I am just in awe of Catherine's work and urge you all to look everything up. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Mlenic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. As always, if you liked this episode, please rate and review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me. Katie Hessel.